certainly feel the Holy Ghost here today. And I know you do too. And um, I think we ought to just lift our hands and give God a little chance to talk to us. Oh, Jesus. What a touch of the Holy Ghost in this place today. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Let me read a scripture and then I'll let you be seated. I'm reading in the book of Jonah. Chapter 1 and verse 1. And it reads like this. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Then I'd like to read in Jonah chapter 3, verse one and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And in a little bit here, I want to preach to you about the second time. The second time. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. God bless you. You may be seated. Um, This is a little bit of a unique day at No Limits, the conference. Um, There's been a lot of strange things happened this year. Somebody called the other day and talked to Brother Young and said, I was barbecuing and felt like I was supposed to call you and tell you it's This is going to be one of the greatest days, greatest conferences in the history, no limits. And I prayed sincerely for God to touch, not for selfish reasons, but to touch this conference with a special touch. In fact, a real supernatural touch where it was unquestionably so that God had supernaturally intervened. There has already been things happen in this conference, things that it's really not my place to talk about. But I will tell you, there has already been strongholds broken in this conference, during this conference, that means yesterday and today, that have been prayed about, worked on, 
dealt with now for several years. And those things are broken as of this morning. Powerful thing. Big thing. And um, I don't believe that's the end. I believe that's the beginning of what God's going to do in the remainder of this conference. Believe that. Amen. Brother Dunn, I saw you walk in back there. Where you at? Brother Aaron, uh, come up here and sit on the platform with me, will you? Brother Dunn, pastors in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is suburb of Tulsa. And uh, good to see you. God bless you. Just preached a conference at his church. Brother, who's with me there? Brother Urshan and Brother Gross. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, glad you're out here. Amen. Um, so we're thankful for God's goodness and what he's doing and his blessings. And uh, <clears throat> there's a certain gravity to this service today. The preaching of my good friend and brother, who in some ways, although I'm not old enough to be his father, in some ways I just have such deep paternal feelings for him and his wife and his family and his church and everything about him, Brother Rick Treese, preached to us this morning um, with such scriptural clarity and with such gravity that while he was preaching, I thought, Lord, this service is going to be one of those services where we talk about shouting later, but we're going to dig in for this day. And sometimes the holy aura, the holy awe of the Holy Ghost, the presence of God can come in a place. I have been in places where, believe it or not, where you could actually feel and see a haze of the Holy Ghost. And I don't think we're a long ways from that today. The Holy Ghost is here. And these are momentous times. Amen. That's the truth. So I want to preach to you. It won't take a long time, I don't think. I want to preach to you about Jonah. My title's the second time, but I want to preach to you first about Jonah the man. Then I want to preach to you about Jonah and the call. And then Jonah and the second time. And then Jonah and Nineveh. When we talk about Jonah the man, we're going to look at some basic stuff 
about him, and then we'll try to get into this on a deeper level. Um, God's already spoke to us in this conference uh, last night. Thank you so much, Brother Carpenter, for preaching the Word of God. Just that was just top shelf, and we love uh, Brother and Sister Carpenter. We appreciate them and their family and their church that we've been privileged to preach in. And uh, God is giving revival in that church. I started to say in that city, but um, it's not just a city. It's a whole area, a region. And we thank God for what he's doing, and we look forward to many more good reports. Jonah the man has often been questioned whether he was a real man or whether he was a story or a legend. But the fact of the matter is, is we know that he was a man, that um, the Bible tells us that he was from the tribe of Zebulun, which is a real flesh and blood group of people. He was from a village uh, not far from where Jesus was raised, about two miles northeast of Nazareth, was a place called Gath Hefer. That's the village that he was raised in. And, of course, Jesus himself. Uh, references Jonah in a very interesting way that we'll look at just a little bit today. So we know that this man is not a figment of the imagination, that he is indeed a real human being. And Jesus understanding this, that he was a part of the Old Testament history, He was at least as much a part of the Old Testament history as was Solomon, because in the same verse or two, Jesus references um, that Jonas was a great man and that Solomon was a great man. And to let you know how great they were, although we don't have records of Jonah's greatness at the level that we have for Solomon, But there had to be a high degree of greatness about Jonah to be mentioned in comparison to Solomon, who was known as great. And then both of them to be mentioned in comparison to Jesus himself, by Jesus himself. Which indicates that Jesus is picking some of the highest that he can find in the Old Testament in terms of greatness to make a comparison to himself. And then of both of them, Jesus says, but a greater than Jonah is here and a greater than Solomon is here. So this man who has this little four-chapter book and has one brief story in the Bible was actually much greater than that. In fact, if you look, you will find, you can find in the Bible Uh, in addition to Jesus, the Old Testament elsewhere mentions Jonah as an accredited prophet from the 8th century BC. Uh, he prophesied at one point in the king's court to the king. And, uh, so he was evidently quite a prominent fellow. Uh, he was a contemporary of two other prophets that we know of, of Amos and Hosea. His predecessors were none other than Elijah and Elisha. His immediate successor, the one that followed him, was Isaiah. So Jonah stands in a, a lineup, in a, in, a, in a great 
hall of faith as being much more than what we think of him uh, when we just read his story. Jonah was not perfect. And those are the things that usually get emphasized in his story. Um, The incompleteness of his spiritual formation, his personal formation, shows in uh, a couple of major areas. First of all, Jonah was an elitist. Uh, He thought he was better than other people. Jonah fell for the idea that God saved him for himself. And he had to learn that God actually saved him for the sake of others. He was like many Israelites who delighted in the fact that they were chosen of God, but they didn't delight in the fact that they were the chosen of God for the purposes of transferring the message of good news to the rest of the world and not to set on it uh, on their own and think of themselves as elite or better than everybody else. And Jonah had fallen into the same trap that other people had fallen into. Jonah also was a prejudiced man. Jonah had racial prejudice. Jonah had uh, ethnic biases. Uh, He certainly was not a perfect man. He detested the Ninevites. Uh, And we'll talk about them a little bit in a minute. But he detested their heathenism. He detested their style. He detested their crudeness, although on one hand they were refined, on another they were extremely crude. Uh, And he detested their cruelty, and he undoubtedly was uh, well aware of what they were like. And he did not want this responsibility in the time in which he lived. He didn't like Gentiles, especially Ninevites. And... uh, But he didn't realize that Israel's world had changed from its early days to where it was. Rather than be an infant group of people that is finding their own way, they were expected to have grown up. And that now they were not simply a local people that moved and transitioned from a tribal existence to a existence with a national identity but that these people had also moved from being a local entity to a intended global influence that God wanted them to have. And that this was going to demand of them that they be leaders on another level. That they would become what we would call in Wilson University world-class leaders on a level that cannot be attained unless you're apostolic. Unless you have the Holy Ghost. You can't attain that. I don't care who you are. You can't attain the level of leadership potential that apostolic people have. Although the far majority of us haven't done very much about reaching it. The the potential that is there is beyond anything else in this world. Bar none. Absolutely beyond anything else in this world. I don't care. Politics. Washington. Moscow. I don't care. Anywhere you want to go. Business world. There is nothing that has the potential that lies within the church. God help us that we would at least scratch a drop or two of it out and make it real in our lives in the 21st century. Can you say amen? Amen. 
And so they weren't aware that as a people they had moved from national to international. And Jonah was not aware that he no longer was just a leader among ethnic people called Israel, but that he was to be a leader in a universal plan of God. That God was moving him from a self-centered world to a world-centered call. And all of this took place when the call of God fell on him. As we read in Jonah chapter 1. Now, I believe that Jonah felt the terror of this call. He felt the enormous weight of it. The task, the resistance that was against him when God called him to go to Nineveh. I believe there was instantly an awareness of a weight of resistance that stood before him. And for a man or woman to to walk such a path of consecrated and disciplined courage is only for those who can no longer Tolerate the emptiness of a superficial existence. People do not walk down this road of universal usefulness until they get sick enough of a superficial existence that they can't stand themselves any longer living as less than what they know God has called them to be and less than what they know they can be. And until you get there, you're just not going to be very much. But when you get there, you'll get so sick of being less than what God wants you to be. And so sick and tired of living second rate and living with the world and the devil having dominance in your world and in your life and in your family. You gotta get sick enough of it until you're not terrified anymore, until you're willing to stand up and say, we are going to take the dominion that God gave to us and that belongs to us. Oh, come on. The Holy Ghost is here. Let's clap our hands and let's praise Him together right now. Amen. Amen. And so we've got God's perception of the situation. Versus Jonah's perception of the situation. God's looking at the big world and its needs. And Jonah is looking at himself and his likes and his dislikes. God sees Jonah as a very key player in attacking one of the oldest strongholds in human history. God doesn't let him pick a fight with the flyweights. God puts him in the ring with the heaviest of the heavyweights, Nineveh. And God sees Jonah not only as a key player, but Jonah sees himself as one of the boys enjoying the warmth of home and a few hobbies and a few nights of peace. Now, he'd been a prophet for some time, but now, on this day, Perhaps unexpectedly, the mission of his life now stands before him. It is a true saying that we've said for years, and it is true, that all moments are not equal. 
There are moments that you cannot escape from the demand of action and obedience. There is nothing in the world that can sidetrack the gravity and the sobriety of such confrontations with one's own destiny. And there are so many people, there are people sitting in this room, who have worked very, very hard to avoid this confrontation with one's own destiny. Because the consequences of embracing that are such that they are terrifying. And as often said, when you step to the edge of that abyss and you look off into what God's expectations are and what God's belief in your potentiality is, uh, there is a drawing back. There is something deeply innate in the flesh that draws back. I can't quite put my hand on it to articulate it in perfect words, uh, but I know it is there. It is not simply a mental decision that a person makes. Uh, it's deeper. It's a visceral reaction that comes out of the enmity of the flesh to the spirit and vice versa. The flesh wildly flinches when this comes by. It's Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. It's Gideon preferring to think of himself as the least of the least rather than to accept what God says when he says, Thou mighty man of valor. It's, it's what Moses faces when he is talking himself out of a call of God by talking and saying that he cannot talk. It is Isaiah saying, Woe is me. It's Jesus going to the Mount of Temptation and there struggling alone with the consequences of the revelation of what he as a man and minister is to be. And there's nobody there but him and God and Satan and wild beasts and angels. It's some kind of place out there where all of the consecrated power of spiritual forces coalesce and where you are invited to go and where you will shrink away and say, please, no. So here is Jonah in the nexus, the crossroads, the intersection of this decision. You cannot think of a major biblical leader that does not contain this dramatic, threatening, resisting element. It's not easy to topple the devil called self. However, the truth of the matter is, here's the core of what I'm going to preach about today, God's help is that you cannot take people where you have not already spiritually gone. You can't wait till the great day of opportunity arises to decide whether or not you're capable 
Because you won't be. And so when we look at Jonah, this kind of encounter removes the options of going back home and just being one of the good old prophet boys. I can tell you ahead of time that one of the things I'm praying today is that there's young men in this building. I know that there's older men that are probably listening today but wouldn't want me to know it. And have all kinds of stuff that they've given their life to fuss about. And have all kinds of ideas that are extra biblical. That they're spending their life trying to convince people that it's worthwhile. And I'm not going to waste my time there. And I'm not going to fuss with them. Unless they just get too close. And I'm not going to fight with them. Unless they fix it where I have no choice. But in the meantime. They don't realize how fast this world's moving. It's already moved past that. You that are 40 or 50 years old. If you're planning on doing something, you better get on your horse. Because your day's already coming to the top of the mountain and it's starting down the other side. And people who are still filled, it's amazing how full of opinions people are that's based on their intelligence. Because they think that intelligence is the key to success in the work of God. And so in every business meeting and in everybody's life, they always have something to say. Although they haven't done squat in the kingdom of God. And they've been running around the same mountain for 40 years with hardly no accomplishments or no fruit or nothing in the, nothing to show that God's hand has been on them and good things have been happening. And yet they're ready to tell everybody how to do everything. Come on, you show me your works. And then I'll show you my faith. And then you show me your faith and I'll show you the words. There's a point, brethren, where we have to come face to face with the fact that the apostolic church was the most successful enterprise on the earth. And if we're not having any success, we ought to be stopping and saying, my God, what is wrong with me? Oh, come on, let's clap our hands and praise Jesus. Holy Ghost is here. Come on, let's love him a little bit. We need the word, but we need the water. May I be seated now. I want to talk about this call that Jonah had. Jonah is one of the most unique books in the Bible. But more than anything, it is the book about the spiritual formative processes of a man called of God to do great things. Now, a lot of people emphasize, when you think of Jonah, immediately you start thinking of all of his failures. But I'd propose to you that you're missing the point, that the point is not his failures, and I would propose to you that his failures were not failures. 
Because this man here is called to do something that is strange and foreign to his own folks. There's no appearance that he had any support from his own people. His upbringing, his likes, his own history, things he was taught, the prejudices, all are working against the calling to his destiny. He has no inward inclination for the enterprise. It's not like he's going to go see people he likes. He's not prepared for the process. He just got challenged by on a scale that he's never encountered before in his life. And his contemporary prophets have never had these demands placed on their life. Jonah, you can't always look back at Elijah and Elisha or at Amos and Hosea and look at them and determine that you're not going to have a call that goes places that they did not have a call. You have to understand the customization and how personal is a call. And this call is going to repeatedly threaten his very life. And he doesn't have many people that seem to be interested in his success. And the book's actually a little bit embarrassing that it allows you and I, the readers, to plunge deep into these painfully intimate and personal details of the spiritual formative processes of a man who's been called to do great things. But we're seeing him in the painful weakness of the formation that prepares him for this. His physical journey parallels his spiritual journey. When you look at his physical journey, you have to see it in the light of his spiritual journey to really understand it. What he encounters physically is what he is experiencing spiritually. And it's also what is experienced by any leader who has been divinely called to do great things. His, his spiritual journey is actually a microcosm of the spiritual journey of his nation, of Israel, the people of which he is a part. And he cannot succeed in this call. Until his encounter with God is deep enough to transform his view of Israel and their responsibility and his view of the remainder of the world. I want to say that again. He cannot escape, he cannot succeed until his encounter with God is deep enough to transform his view of Israel, his people, and their responsibility. And also transform his view of the remainder of the world. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see it on a broad enough scale. Lift up your eyes and look on the harvest. Look on the fields that are white. Lift up your eyes. We have got Ecclesiastes disease. 
In Ecclesiastes, several scores of times, the preacher who says all is vanity and vexation of spirit uses the term under the sun. Everything under the sun is vanity and vexation of spirit. But after you've read that from him about 20 times, you want to get a hold of him and say, listen to me, preacher man, lift up your eyes and quit looking at stuff that's just under the sun and look at it from a perspective that's over the sun and see what God sees with a universal view of what is going on. I'm proposing to you, unless apostolic Pentecost gets what I'm talking about, there's going to be a lot of churches that's already started down the tubes uh, that's going to disappear in infamy because there's not a big enough vision of who they are and what God's people are and what God's vision of the world is. Oh, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Let me just take a moment to talk about the go. Arise, go. That's chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go. That's chapter 3, verse 2. That word go is the same word, Septuagint, but that word go is the same word in Matthew 28, 19. Go. That is a go of evangelism. That is a go that is intentionally evangelistic. In fact, scholars are surprised that the book of Jonah is even in the Bible. And some Jewish scholars are surprised it's in the Bible. They're surprised because it's evident that Jonah is obviously A representation of the failure of the nation of Israel, which stubbornly resisted to fulfill its role in the earth to which it is called. Further, Jonah, like Israel, is misunderstanding evangelism in the Old Testament as only being passive. That is, we will be examples and anybody who wants to come can come to our church and get saved. That's passive evangelism. And there's a role for that. But the evangelism in the Old Testament that Israel did not get is that it was not only supposed to be passive, it was supposed to be active. And so God says to Jonah, I'm going to use you as the example. Arise. Go. The same as the go in the New Testament. Go. And I want you to preach to these people. And I want you to talk. You've got to engage your world. Listen to me. We've only got a limited amount of time. Listen to me. I'm just going to tell you. I've told you enough times, but I'm going to tell you again. That isolation produces distortion. Let me say that again, even in stronger terms. Isolation always produces one kind of distortion or another. When you think that you're doing God's will by isolating with a few guys and going sitting out in the desert... And judging everybody else of whether they're right or wrong. Because you're out here detached from the whole world. You're sitting out here and you built bleachers out here in the desert. So you can look on to everybody else and tell them when they're right or wrong. I'm going to tell you, you are distorting and don't even know that you're already distorted. 
Because the church was, you may be seated, because the church was never intended to be isolated from the world. The church is like Naboth's vineyard that was hard against the king's palace. And the king wants it because it's the best vineyard around. And it's right next to the palace. And God puts his inheritance right next to the palace. And he says, don't sell that inheritance. Don't move to the desert. Don't trade it. I want you right here by the king's palace. Because you're going to engage your world. Uh, You're called to be in the world. While not being of the world. It may seem easier not to be of the world. If you're out in the desert. uh, But that's not who you are. You lose your identity. And you lose the purpose that I put you in the earth. When you isolate to the desert. I'm preaching to some of you young men that are not even in this auditorium today that are listening to my voice. Uh, That's under the influence and power of people that hold you and capture you and control you. Uh, And it's a whole controlled governance mechanism. Uh, And they control you by intimidation. And they control you by telling how bad the rest of us are. But I'm here to tell you that is a culture, as one man said, that is a culture of death. Uh, And that will not bring revival to you. And that will not bring true holiness to you that will bring distortion to you oh come on let's clap our hands and praise the Lord Holy Ghost is here let's really give him a little praise today Man, don't have time to preach all that. Jonah and the story of Jonah. John is commanded to go east to Nineveh. So Jonah goes west to Tarshish. He is a disobedient young man but he not only goes west he also goes down from the very first Jonah goes down before he finally goes up in fact he encounters six downs he goes down to Joppa he goes down in the ship he goes down in the deep And each one of the sequence is deeper than the last. He goes down in the fish. And then the Bible tells us in 2 and 6 that he goes down to the bottom of the mountains and the bottom of the sea. And then I could add one more. He goes down to the belly of hell. He goes into the darkness of the storm. He goes into further darkness in the deep. He goes into further darkness in the large fish. And Jesus himself compares it to the most intense days of Jesus' ministry. Of three days in the deep of the earth. Which lets you know that all this going down was not just physical. And therefore, what I said earlier now may make a little more sense is that his physical story 
run in parallel to his spiritual story. And Jesus leaves no doubt of the spiritual nature of the encounter. But I got to ask you, who does not go down before such a challenge? Because this boy is being asked to face this call without so much as a contemplation. And if there's any story in the Bible that is explained by these verses any better than Jonah, I don't know of it. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these are the ones who see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits in. Those verses and a few more are at the core of teaching on spiritual leadership in Wilson University. That this is the journey of leadership. That leadership in our day is not carried out on dry ground. And that today you have to have landmarks, but you have to have more than landmarks. Because nobody sees, nobody sees the wonders of the Lord and the works of the Lord until they're ready to do business in great waters where life is lived on the fluid, on the rocking deck which demands constantly, if there's anything that, if there's anything that manifests the 21st century, what I'm about to say manifests the 21st century. You're not walking out here where there's landmarks. You're walking out here on a deck that demands constant rebalance every step you take because the boat is constantly rocking in the 21st century. The apostolic movement is constantly rocking in the 21st century. There's people backsliding you never thought would backslide. There's people calling wrong right and right wrong that you never thought would fall into that. It's a top tipsy topsy world. Government is in the same everything. Everything is in the you don't know. You don't know what the stock market's gonna do tomorrow. Everything is volatile. Everything. And here we are doing leadership that God has called you and I to do in this time that we're living in. And there's no choice except to say, He gives a promise we can make it if we're willing to embrace the deep and walk into it with the touch of God. Come on, help me praise him a minute. So you got to tell me who can face such a challenge? Who can face the world's most spiritually entrenched powers? I will tell you, the only people that can do that are people who have first visited a deep that is commensurate in darkness and terror to Nineveh 
itself. You can't take people where you've never been. Moses thinks he's going to lead the people out of Egypt. Thinks he's going to be the big savior. Sees an Egyptian killing uh, one of his Israeli brethren. Decides he'll be the hero. He's in Pharaoh's house. Comes up with a sword. Kills the Egyptian, expects the Israeli people to applaud him and embrace him. And instead, they're terrified of him. And their response is, if you would do that to him, you would do that to us. Because they don't get it. And he doesn't have the right methods because he doesn't have enough spiritual formation himself. You can't be a deliverer unless you have been to the place you're going to deliver them to before you deliver them there. And so if you'll look up in your Bible, you will find that when he finally gets to the burning bush, which was his crossroads, like Jonah's call was his crossroads. When you look at the burning bush, study just a little bit, you'll see that the burning bush is at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God tells him at the burning bush, Moses, I'm going to bring the people and you're going to bring the people here where you presently are. And so a leader sees the vision, goes there in the spirit experiences the equivalent depth of spiritual opposition in the visionary encounter before he ever begins in the world of finite existence the practical actions which will make that reality. It's already reality to him because he's experienced this in the spiritual encounter that leaders must have before they can lead people to greatness. And he comes out of that burning bush and goes back. And he's not misunderstood anymore. And when he speaks, people understand him. And when he acts, it all works. Because he is in the proper rhythm of the eternal workings of the Spirit of God. And what he does works because he's in the stream and in the alignment with what God is doing supernaturally. And so he steps forth with power and says, let my people go. And those words ring with such authority because those words come out of a burning bush where he is alone, where he has already got the spiritual encounter, where he's already visited the powers of hell, if you please, uh, where he's already been to the deep. So what does it mean to go there? Well, that's what I'll close on. Bible does say that he goes to the ship, he gets thrown off of the ship. Now, I'm going to tell you, some people get a choice of whether they're going to go. 
Now this is, I'm just dealing with the sovereignty of God. You can figure out if you think it's fair or not. When you get it all figured out that God's not fair, I'll agree with you. He is just, but he's not always fair. That's a different kind of thing. Fair is a relational thing. Justice is an eternal thing. And I'm just going to tell you, there's some people, and I hope some of you is here today, that God's not going to let you get away with being a light in the britches leader in the kingdom of God. He's going to force you. He's going to throw you overboard. He's going to have a big fish come and get you. In fact, the word that Jesus used was, was a sea monster. He's going to have a monster bite you. And swallow you. One of the words in the Hebrew talk when, when Jonah's praying says, I got seaweed wrapped around me. He's down in that beautiful hotel. In a prayer room. I'll just tell you, if you fool around long enough and you can't find yourself a prayer room, God will make you one. You say, well, Brother Wilson, are you saying God's going to force me? I don't know. I'm just telling you. He forced this old boy. But he didn't want to go to Nineveh. What do I think he saw when he was down there in the deep? It doesn't just say he went to the deep. It says he went to hell. The word there is Sheol has several ways that it can be used. One of them is the abode of the dead. The abode of the dead in scripture, sometimes it's questionable if it means dead as you and I think of dead or dead in the sense of being in the deep of the wicked spirit world. And I believe that's where he went. When he comes out of there, he's a different man. And he's supposed to go to Nineveh. Let me take three or four minutes to tell you about Nineveh. At that time that Jonah was called there, it was very possibly the largest city on earth. Don't go past that too quick. The largest city on earth. They estimate that including children, women, everybody, there was probably close to 600,000 people. And that it was very likely the largest city on earth. So God just can't send him over here to the little town that's got one stoplight and a 7-Eleven to preach and then go back home. God insists. Because God is in a battle with the gods of this world. The idols and the demonic forces behind them. This is why you see such violence in the Old Testament. It is not God against people. But people who side with idols are considered the army of the idols. And they have chosen to fight against God. And God is not going to be defeated. And so Nineveh is a big city. It's 500 miles east of Palestine. The circumference around Nineveh, it was big, it was, it had suburbs. 
The circumference was 60 miles. The wall around the inner city was 40 to 50 feet high. This is not guesswork. It's not even history. It's excavations, archaeological diggings. It had 15 main gates that went into the city, five of which have been excavated. Each of them were guarded by large stone sculptures of bulls. The town included parks and gardens. It had two zoos. It had beautiful palaces. It had guard temples. Its extravagant beautification kept it as the leading world city of Jonah's time. It was known for its architecture and its splendor. And it was also known for its wickedness and its violence. It was known for its idolatrous worship. It's known for its extreme cruelty. Purportedly, it included a large mound of human bones and skulls outside the main gate of the city as a warning to potential enemies. Let me take just a minute to talk about Nineveh. If you go back in time, Nineveh was one of the first beginning cities established in the history of the human race. Which means that ingrained and entrenched in Nineveh were the oldest entrenchments of demonic darkness in the world. Now, when you look at the hesitancy of Jonah, it takes on a little different light. Nineveh was... Uh, the name is thought to come from Nu Nu, Inu Inu, which was, they believe, a term, a subname for Nimrod, who lived in Nineveh and who founded Nineveh. So here's Jonah in 800 BC. Centuries, God only knows how many centuries, probably at least 1,500 years, maybe longer, we don't know, after Nineveh was founded. Here's Jonah, just an apostolic boy that has been called of God. He's paying his dues to his organization. He's faithful to the fellowship meeting. He's a good boy. He goes to Bible school. Everybody likes him. But he goes now to a place where there's a call and nobody can go with him. And when he gets to that call, he recognizes that God has chosen him to confront the greatest powers in the spirit world, Nunu is Akkadian language, and it's the meaning of it is fish. It's a play on words, and because they had the fish god, which is where Dagon comes from later, that you find the Phoenician god Dagon, and 
So Nimrod was a play on words which the titling as fish god took made him as God. And today while I'm preaching in 2018, the, the, the religion established by Nimrod still rules millions of people in this world today. This is who Jonah was called to come against. And this is who Jonah was called to confront. So when he was down in the deep, at the lowest place, in Sheol, whether that's typical or not, he's down there. He's with all these things. He looks around. It said it was a place of the dead. And looks up and sees a terrifying looking personage. And the personage looks at him and smiles and says, Hello, Jonah. My name is Nimrod. And Jonah backs away and turns. And over here, Hello, Jonah. My name is Semiramis. And over here, hi, Jonah. My name is Tammuz. These are the gods of the earliest demonic strongholds that were there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Because demons don't die and devils don't die and angels don't die. And this is why you can't fight this on your own because they were here a long time before you got here. And they know stuff you don't know. You have to stay full of the Holy Ghost. And John is terrified. And he doesn't want all of this. He just wants to get away. And so he prays a prayer that really ends up to be kind of hypocritical. But he prays it sincerely. God, deliver me. Get me out of here. And so God sends a limousine to pick him up. And the limousine takes him and sweeps him up to the shore and pukes him out in the vomit. And he gets up. But I'm going to tell you something. When he came out of that, the second time, God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. I don't believe he just said, yes, Lord, because he was so intimidated. I believe he knew at that point, Brother Dunn, I can do this. You know what needs to happen to some of us here today? We need to do whatever it takes to understand. Now, don't, don't be offended at me. But if, if you go home, I mean, you could be in a little town that doesn't have 50 people and you're running 50. So there you got it. And they need a pastor. I understand all that. But if you're in a place and you haven't had people get the Holy Ghost for a year or two. And you haven't grown in 25 years. I mean, that doesn't mean you're a bad guy. And I'm not making fun of you because I love you. But I don't see how you can take that.
I don't see, I, I don't see how something doesn't rise up in you and say, I may die, but I'm not living this way. I'll break this town or this town will break me, but I am not. I am not. So when Jonah walks into that town, maybe see. And he starts walking down the street. You know, we get so, we're going to teach you how to have a good attitude. We need to quit worrying so much about everybody's attitude. Start worrying about their power. I mean, at the end of the book, we still got Jonah. He's still messed up. He's still messed up at the end of the book. But when he walks into Nineveh, that city with the deepest, darkest strongholds in the world. When he walks into Nineveh. The first time he says, Brother Blash, 40 days. That city hits their knees. Because he already conquered Nineveh. He was just at John 5.19. John 5.19, Jesus said, I do nothing. Nothing except what the Father showeth me. He saw it and then he did it. And when he walked into Nineveh and those spirits rose up and said, you can't have revival in this city. He said, shut up. I've already defeated you. And I defeated your daddy, Nimrod. Okay, so this guy here, some of you know him. I just saw Brother Heyman over here. He used to travel and evangelize with him. He knows him better than any of us. His name was Verbal Bean. He died in a head-on car wreck at the age of 44. 15 years after I became acquainted with him. When he was 29 and I was... 14 or 15. I just got the Holy Ghost like the year before. And he was preaching a revival in Fresno and I lived in Kerman, 15 miles away at a little country church. And my folks must have seen the impact that the revival was having. My folks and I never talked about this and they're both dead, so we'll have to talk about it in heaven. But they must have seen the impact that it was having on me because every night that we didn't have 
church in our church at home. Now, they wouldn't go to revival in another place when there's a church at our church, of course. But when there wasn't church at our church, we were at the revival that this young man was, he was single. And we were at the revival that he was preaching. I had never seen anything like that. My church had never experienced anything like that, at least since we'd been there. Brother Heyman, I'd never seen a preacher like that who didn't even preach half the time and sometimes would stand in the pulpit for 10 minutes with his eyes closed. And finally give a message in tongues and interpret it himself and make an altar call and a bunch more people get the Holy Ghost. And sin would be revealed. I was in the revival when he terrified us and said, you know, this revival's been going on now for a number of weeks. There's a man here in this church. You're a respected man. But you have sin in your life. And God has given you a chance to repent. And you have not. And your sin is one that would be very embarrassing. And if you do not repent tonight, within two weeks... Your name will be in the headlines of the Fresno Bee for the sin that you're doing, and it will be revealed to the world. And within two weeks, his name was in the headlines. And as a boy, I read it. When Brother Bean came to California, I don't know of one church, maybe one, but other than that, maybe, because I'm not sure, I don't know of one church that was having revival. It was different than it is today. It was, it, was, it was not the same as it is today. There were spiritual strongholds that had not been broken. There's spiritual strongholds in church. If you're not getting the Holy Ghost, it's not because, if nobody's getting the Holy Ghost in your church, it's not only because there's nobody hungry in your town. It's not because you're a bad guy. It's not because your wife's not a good woman. Don't let the devil tell you all that. It's because there's spiritual strongholds there. And those spiritual strongholds have to be broken, Brother Mike. And somebody's got to walk in there. And they've got to break that and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm here. And so this man came and he started breaking that stronghold in church after church. The great churches in California today, a large number of them, became great churches through the ministry of this man breaking it. And in California, the second man that broke it the most was Vaughn Morton. But this man was the He was the 
trailblazer. And I listened to him preach. And I had never heard anything like it. And I was... Part of the time, I didn't even have a pastor. There'll be people say, aha, that's what's wrong with him. Little country church. Sometimes it wasn't even, we didn't have pastor. We'd go from pastor to pastor. And it wasn't a stable situation. So, I didn't have anybody tell me different. I played little league. And now I'm just telling you my story. Okay? I'm sure your story's better. I'm sure you were a better athlete than I was. And I don't care. But if you would have lived in our town, you wouldn't have been a better athlete. And I was telling Brother Simmons the other day from Fireball. Where are you at, Brother Simmons? Here somewhere. I said, Brother Simmons, I remember playing a game in Little League in Mendota. And they had a pitcher that was illegal, everybody said, because he was so much bigger than the rest of us. And obviously older and he was much stronger than the rest of us and he was pitching to me that day and I hit the ball so hard it went out in center field so far it went into the weeds and they had to go try to find it and he threw his glove down in anger I'm almost done, but I'm a long ways from being done. In high school, I can't remember ever when my PE class wasn't first, my team wasn't first or second and a rare third in anything. I didn't get straight A's in anything except PE. And on and on it goes. Man that lived across the street from us was a great sports fan. And he got so mad. He told my dad and a group of men, he said, we finally get one boy in our town that could go be something for the sake of the town. He's talking about sports. And he said, then he goes and gets hung up in that little church down there. And the whole thing goes up the, in smoke. But that's the view of a sinner. That's what sinners think. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. That was a long time ago. And when the boys come by and say, hey, they're taking the team to see the San Francisco Giants. You want to go? I didn't have a pastor to ask. I looked at my mom and dad. I said, because the boys are standing there at the door and their dads are waiting in the car. And I thought, this is going to be my decision. 
I said, no, I don't think I'm going to go. I'm not going to do that. Because with no preacher, I'm almost done, but I'm a long ways from being done. Because it's not the volume of words you say, it's what you say. There was no preacher to tell me not to. But I can remember being in right field. And I can remember the Holy Ghost saying. I don't ever remember this man preaching against it, although I know he did. But the Spirit of God transferred from him to me. In me. Said, boy, you don't need to be out here playing. You need to be at the church praying. Now you say, I don't think that's going to send me to hell, Brother Wilson. Well, you and I are on a different conversation level today. You're talking minimums. I'm talking maximums. You're talking, what can I get by with? I'm talking about, what can I do? What can I do to give you more? Not less, more. Our world is caught. One of the, one of the characteristics of our world is games. Internet games. Obsession with fiction. Las Vegas gaming. Obsession with the fiction that we're supposed to get rich without work. Sports games. Fictional champions that really aren't champions of anything except a manufactured fiction for the purpose of vicariously giving us the feeling of being champions, but it's in stuff that's only a puff of wind because it produces no crops and it does nothing of value except usher you into a world of fiction. In fact, you can sit down for just a minute. In fact, when it comes to sports, I'm going to talk about this. I'm not going to slap this and go by. This, listen to me, friends, this is not an organizational difference of opinion. This is the Nineveh of 2018. This is the idolatry of 2018. Champions, heroes, shame on you, apostolic. If, if you've got pictures of heroes, sports heroes, in your kids' rooms, some of them scantily attired on top of that. 
and and they, they can't name the apostles and they don't know anything. But you've got your kids caught up in a world. Shame, 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 shame on you. Now, I don't dislike the guys playing. I don't know them, but. And I don't blame them. Most of them are poor boys making money. It's not about them. It's not even about the owners. It's not even about the billions of illegal dollars gambled every year on sports. It's not even about the fact that the Super Bowl is the number one sex trafficking event of underage people and people who are kidnapped to be sexual slaves in America every year. You're telling me that you're putting that in your home or even your church and you're justifying it Come on, bro, get real. You know better than that. But you are caught in its bondage. And the spirit of Nineveh is overpowered. The spirit of God because your spiritual formation has not got down deep enough to take advantage of the power of God to overcome that. That's not almost the way it is. That is the way it is. But it's not too late. He came the second time. Oh, you can go on and make it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what make it means. I don't know. I don't, I'm not referring to salvation. I'm not referring to anything. I'm just, you can go on and make it, whatever make it means. But I'm talking about... What No Limits is talking about, what the people in this building is talking about is excellence on a scale that requires complete focus. And you can't get that fooling away your life out there. Hollywood, fiction. The movies are fiction. The television is fiction. They're all made up and that is fiction. The awards they get are them giving them to one another. That's all fiction. I don't hate anybody. I'm just being honest about this today and telling you that as apostolic, they can do what they want. But as apostolic, we ought to be doing what we know we ought to be doing. Oh, come on. Let's clap our hands and love Jesus a little bit. So, Brother Dunn here, in 1991, Brother Dunn played in the Little League World Series. 
How far did you guys get? We took third. You took third in the world. How old were you? I was 10 or 11. 10 or 11. How many games did you play that year? Over 100. How long was the season? It was standard season. We just played a lot of tournaments. So it was several games a day. So a season would be what, three or four months? Yes, sir. And then maybe another month and a half tacked on that? Yes, sir. So let's say that's uh, five months. And five months is 150 days. You do the math. And tell me how obsessive this was in this boy's life. 150 days and he played over 100 games. Would that be closer to 150 or 100? Over 100 games. That's what? A lot of games. <laughs> then did you all ever practice? Every day. Every day. Every day. And then by yourself. How many hours together? I have no idea how to quantify that. Whole bunch. Lots of hours. <laughs> Lots of hours. Listen, folks. We're not talking about, well, we play ball at our church picnic. Come on. Get real. Really? You're going to say that? We're talking about obsession where people can't wait to get to the ballpark. They've got to see their hero. I saw a preacher's wife the other day. Somebody showed me a picture. I don't know if it was on Instagram or longtime Graham, but it was on there. And, and she was hugged up to a famous ball player. An apostolic preacher's wife hugged up. She's... 60, over 60 years old. So, I mean, she's, I guess she thinks she's, anyway. <laughs> Hugged up to this ball player. So proud to be a part of it. Hey, do I feel myself hitting a little snag here? So, what do you think's happening, Brother Wilson? I'll tell you what I think's happening. What I think's happening is there may have been time that we could get by, get by with some things who didn't have as much danger as they do today, and also God winked at times ignorance. That's the only way I can categorize it. But it's things that Today is, he's calling the second time. And the second time says, I want to be world class. Can't do it with Hollywood. Can't do it with the world. I'm in. I wonder if there's some 12 and 13 and 14 year olds that would like to make a consecration today that says I'm in I'm throwing down the gauntlet now 
That's what I did. And the rest of my life, I've kept that commitment. And now I'm 72 years old. And I can tell you, I haven't been a hypocrite about it. And God's blessed me. I get to be part of this church. I get to be part of the university. I married a woman that was the most praying girl in Bible school. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to marry her. Who made the same kind of consecration. It wasn't somebody telling me I got to do this. It wasn't some bunch of red-eyed radicals somewhere. It's I said no. And I'll tell you something about our churches, Pastor. If there was ever a time that we need to get up and say, this doesn't, we're not talking about whether we were right or wrong in the past. This is where we're starting, right here. This is the day to do that. This is the day to do that. Stand with me. So these kind of things are big decisions. So are we going to walk down the road or we're not going to walk down the road? want you to think about it a little bit. This church is continuing to have revival. It's continuing to grow. It's got, with Brother Young and other things that's going on, it's got ministries expanding that are just mind-boggling. This isn't about us. I'm, I'm just get past that. They're mind-boggling. Things that are happening are mind-boggling. We don't even try to put out a newsletter about it. I mean, it's too much. It'd be, we'd spend all of our time writing newsletters and quit doing it. All to say, this isn't just how I live and my wife lives. This is how my son-in-laws live. This is how my daughters live. This is how my grandkids live. I'm so glad my grandkids don't have a taste for this. This I don't worry about them sneaking around telling somebody about the latest movie. They're not at the latest movie. Remember, I live, when you talk about movies and all they're okay and all this, remember, I'm a guy that lives in, in, in California. Don't act like an authority to we who live in California about movies and about the industry and about where it comes from and what they're like and what the background and what the underbelly is. Paramount Studios was about 200 feet behind the church I used to pastor. So I'm not mad and I'm not angry and I'm not ugly and I love you and I'll give you a big hug. But I do believe that in this meeting... That this morning, while Brother Therese was preaching, and this afternoon, that God is talking to us about some things that the changing times is demanding that we give new attention to.
and say, God, help me to be the leader that I ought to be. So we're going to sing. Now, if you come to pray, it doesn't mean you've been doing something wrong. But I have, I just have a little reticence about twisting you around psychologically to get you to come and pray. I mean, when you preach like this, you ought to be honest enough to, people have to process. People in the rock church don't have to process it. They've already processed it, but I'm not talking about the rock church. So let's sing and let's see what happens.